Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Our collect or our prayer as we opened our service is this, Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal life. Well, the words of that prayer, of course, are taken from today's gospel, a familiar gospel reading to us. Uh, We hear it most frequently at funerals because it's such a word of hope. It is a word that uh, Jesus has indeed gone to prepare a place for us, that in God's house are many dwelling places, that he and the Father are one, and that we will be with him. It's a wonderful, wonderful gospel of hope and the Lord's care for us. Jesus in this passage is telling his disciples yet again that he will be going away. He will be leaving them, that he will die. And it's getting closer and closer. It's after this, con- this conversation takes place after uh, Maundy Thursday. He's, he's going, he's telling them that this is where, that he will be gone from them. But that he will come back for them. He's preparing a place for them. And Thomas, wonderful Thomas, always wanting to know the nuts and bolts of things, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus replied, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. It's this assertion, really, St. Peter says, Jesus, in saying this, He's saying he is the unique way. If he is the way, there is no other. If he is the truth, there is no truth outside of him. If he is the life, there is no life outside of Jesus. And Peter, in his epistle today, says it has become a stumbling block for many. The cornerstone that makes people stumble. A rock that makes them fall. But is also the very foundation of the house which Jesus is building, which God is building through Jesus. But Jesus is quite unequivocal. He alone is the way. He alone is the truth. He alone is life. No one comes to the Father except through him. In fact, he claims that he and the Father are one. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The Father who dwells in me does his work. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He doesn't say that he leads people to the path, to the way, 
or to the truth or to the life. But he says all of this is found in his person. He's not the signpost. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's not pointing to those things. But they are all found in himself. They're not abstract ideas. Truth is not an objective construct out there that can be grasped, nor a subjective construct of our own minds. Um, How frequently today we hear, well, um, if I think it's this way, therefore it must be this way. (laughs) Um, If in my own experience this is true, then it is truth indeed. Jesus says truth is uniquely found in him, who is both God and man. The way to God is not modeled for us through Jesus, although he is the model of our lives. But the way to God is Jesus in himself. And if he is the way, the truth, and the life, there is no pathway, no truth outside of him, no life outside of him. That's quite a challenging statement. In fact, surely uh, C.S. Lewis had at least this passage in mind when he wrote the following. Remember, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He, uh, he was a professor in Oxford and in Cambridge. Um, he had been born in Ireland. His mother had died when he was very young. Um, he'd been a churchgoer but went away from the faith and just could not believe in God. He, was, uh, he calls himself uh, the most reluctant convert in probably all of Christianity. And want, but yet once he came to faith... He was one of the great apologists of the 20th century, one who defended the faith and uh, and, and knew how to defend the faith. He said this, um, surely um, after reading this this passage and others uh, in John, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And elsewhere he wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If it's false, it's unimportant. If it's true, it's infinitely important, eternally important, but it cannot be in the middle. It can't just be moderately important. If anyone were to say these things today, we would find them incredibly arrogant. If I were to say to you, I am the truth and the way and the life, um, you would probably think me certifiable and I would definitely need some help. But in actual fact, over the last couple of hundred years, um, 
different systems have claimed just that. Culture has claimed that it is the way, the truth, and the life. Science has claimed that it is the way, the truth, and the life. Our reason has claimed that it is the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes we even have the gall to say, well, if I think this, um, then that's the truth. And I know the way. Um, I've just made it up in my head, so that must be the way. And certainly I have life, so therefore I am living in this is life. But Jesus' words make us uncomfortable because he claims only in him are those things true. He challenged and made very uncomfortable the Pharisees, in fact, so much so to the extent that they wanted to kill him. Because a few chapters earlier, in chapter 10, he had said, I and the Father are one. They understood what that meant. They understood that in those words, he made himself God. In fact, that's what it says in Scripture. When they heard that, they heard that he was calling himself God, and they took up stones to stone him. It was not his time. But it is precisely these kind of statements that ultimately led to his death, and it is to his death that gives us the lens through which to fully interpret Jesus' claim that he is alone the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, any questions that we have of Jesus, any questions that we have of God, any questions at all have to pass through the cross because they all end there. We're confronted in all of our questions about who God is, about who Jesus is, they end at the cross. Because if God is, and he is, the creator of all things, outside of time and yet inside our time, who breathed all things into life, who is omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing, ever-present, eternal. If he is all of those things, and he is, if there was another way to reconcile us to him, would he not have put it in place? If there was another way, other than him becoming man and him dying on a cross. So the mystery of how that happens for us, that's wrapped in mystery. But the fact is that that was the way that God devised, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, the creator of all things, It must be the only way. The cross reveals who God is. It perfectly reveals his character. It's a humble character. Humility, self-sacrifice, surrender. All of those things are found in Jesus, who is God and man, 
on the cross. It's where our sins die and the empty tomb is where eternal life is given to us. So any questions that we have about this statement by Jesus or any others have to look at the cross and say, this is how God loved us. By coming and becoming man and going to the cross for us. There's a wonderful prayer in the Book of Common Prayer. It's called the Collect for Mission. And it says, he stretched out his arms of love on the hard wood of the cross so that everyone might come within the reach of his saving embrace. Jesus' way is the way of suffering. His way is the way of humility. His way is the way of servanthood, the way of death on our behalf. It's the way of God, the way of love, unmerited love, unfathomable love, unsearchable love, unending love. It's the way of God's love for us. And so this is the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Stephen knew that. He went to his death for it. He could not blaspheme his Lord. He could not say anything other than he who he saw as the clouds opened, sitting at the right hand of God, was the saviour of the world, the only way to the Father. And he was stoned to death, and in his dying reflected exactly the way of the Master. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do as they are stoning him to death. And that young man who is standing at the side edges of the crowd, guarding the clothes for those who are stoning Stephen, is none other than Saul, who is breathing fire after all of those who are following the way. You know, before we were called Christians in Antioch, we were called followers of the way, followers of Jesus. This is Saul there. But after he encounters the risen Christ on the Damascus road, there is nothing that will stop him from proclaiming the one who he knows to be the way, the truth, and the life. Shipwrecks won't stop him. Stonings won't stop him. Imprisonments won't won't stop him. Flogging will not stop him. Nothing will stop him because he wants everybody to come within the saving embrace of this one, Jesus. He doesn't stop until Caesar's axe goes to his head and cuts off his head. He never stops Such does he know that this is the only way to the Father. We are those who continue the work of Stephen and Paul and all of the disciples who came after. Peter says, we are the ones who are being built up on this living stone. 
Each of us bricks, mortar, going up, built into this house, this house which is Jesus, this body which is Jesus, this living body, this holy people, not because we're holy, but because Jesus has made us holy. He has made us righteous. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We can get confused with that word priest because we've only got that one word in English, but it means a different thing here and one other place in the New Testament than it does as far as my orders are concerned or anybody who is a Christian priest. That word in the New Testament in Greek is presbyteros. It's the elder. It's somebody who is raised up to kind of preside, uh, to celebrate, to, to, to be the presider of the community. That's very different from this word. This word is the same word in Greek translations of the Old Testament that's used for the Aaronic priesthood, for the sacrificing priests, for the priests in the line of Aaron who stand as mediators between man and God, making sacrifices on behalf of the people. That word is herios. All of the Aaronic priests, all of the priests, all of the Levites who come are sacrificing priests. They sacrifice the animals on behalf of the people. They stand in the middle between God and the people. That's not what the presbyteros are, because we all come equally into the presence of God through the cross. But this priesthood is different. The only other place that that word is used of a priest in the New Testament is in Hebrews when the author writes of Jesus who is our great high priest. He is the ultimate sacrificing priest because he is both priest and sacrifice. He is the lamb without blemish and the one who sacrifices himself. And we are being built up on him to be a royal sacrificing priesthood. Our sacrifice is not animal sacrifices. Our sacrifices are sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. But in this, Peter says we are to be that mediating priesthood together who mediate between man and Christ. We are to go out and bring those who do not know him to him so that they may enter into a personal relationship with him. He says we are to proclaim the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why he's making us into a royal priesthood so that we might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're to share Christ. We're to share that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But we're to share the good news in the same manner in which he shared his life, sacrificially, humbly, as servants, not with arrogance. We are to come gently to those. Gently, respectfully. As St. Peter says, we are always to be ready to give an account of the hope that is within us, but to do it gently and respectfully. 
Oftentimes over this passage, the question arises, but what about the people who haven't had the opportunity to have the gospel message proclaimed to them? I had that question myself when I first came to faith. I can remember asking that. What about all those people? But you know what? That puts God in a box. It means that only our voices are going to be able to reach them. He's bigger than that. He asks us to use our voices. He calls us to use our voices to come alongside those who do not know Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. We are to do that, but he's not constrained by that means. Remember my story. I knew Jesus by wood carvings on the wall of a chapel. I walked those stations of the cross and knew he spoke to my heart through those wood carvings. Um, A few months ago, there was a a YouTube that was going around. You might have seen it. You know, you you can't um, openly take Bibles into China. You've got to smuggle them in. And, um, you know, you you can be thrown in jail for doing that and in a lot of different uh, places in the world as well where they're not allowed to meet together like we can here. They're not allowed to have a Bible. And it shows them just tearing open, unzipping these suitcases that are filled with Bibles in their own language that they can now read, that they can now encounter Jesus in the living word that comes alive to them. And they are crying Tears streaming down their eyes as they pick up one of these Bibles in their own language. They're shrink wrapped, they're in plastic, and they take them out and they hold them like this, and there are tears streaming down their eyes. We have how many in our homes? Here's several in our homes. We just pick it up and it's nothing, it's everything. To these people who have never had the word written to be opened up and they're just sitting there, rocking backwards and forwards, holding the Bible as if it's a baby. This is life for them. God can use any means possible to come and open himself to his children as the way, the truth, and the life. This just yesterday, somebody had told me about this, this chap. His name is Nabil Kurashi, and um, he's about 33. He's a medical doctor. He came over with his family from Pakistan when he was very, very young. In fact, um, maybe he wasn't even born. No, he probably wasn't born because what year was did uh, Elvis Presley die? So he was born over here. Um, He tells a funny story. He said uh, they arrived, his father um, and mother arrived uh, the day that Elvis Presley had died, and the newspaper headlines were, the king is dead. And his father thought, well, I thought it was a democracy. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it, how different perspectives see things differently. But they were devout Muslims. They were um, um, his, his, on his mother's side. Um, his, uh, f- her father had been an evangelist in Indonesia for Islam. And um, they trained him up. When you go to school and later on when you go to university, uh, there'll be Christians who will approach you. This is what you say to them. He said the first time 
that um, somebody approached me and asked me if I knew Jesus. He said, I was, um, I was about seven or eight, and it was a little girl sitting next to me. And he said, can you explain to me the Trinity? How can one God be three people? Where does Jesus say that he was God? He had all of the responses to this little girl, and she just said, well, I know he's my savior, she said down. Well, fast forward many years later, and uh, he's in university, and his roommate, um, name is David, um, happened to be a devout Christian. He wasn't about to bludgeon him into the faith, respectfully, gently, in great humility, self-sacrificially, like Jesus. For all of the years that they were in university together, and I think it was like four or five that, um, that this, these conversations took place, Nabil, who evidently is an incredibly bright young guy and knows his Quran and knows all the arguments, would have these conversations with David. And so they would continue on, and uh, this is a long story about that. He tells all of the different conversations that, that they had. Finally, they'd kind of exhausted that a little bit, and, and, and his friend said, well, why don't we now study about uh, the Quran? So Nabil thinks, okay, this is my opportunity to convert David to Islam. So they start going through the Quran, but there are more and more things that he starts to question. And there's one in particular, and he goes to the Hadith, which are the commentaries on the Quran, and then he goes to the Imams, and they can't answer him. And um, eventually, he just pleads with God, Allah, to reveal to him, is Jesus God? Is he the way? He doesn't want the answer because he knows he will be outside of his family. He'll never be able to be welcomed into his family home again. And in fact, one of the things in the Quran is is that if you apostatize from Islam, then uh, it is appropriate to have you killed, to be killed because of apostasy. And he knew this. Now, in Islam, dreams and visions have very high validity. People will recount a vision or a dream um, as if it is the truth coming from God. And so he pleads with God, send me a sign, send me a dream, one way or the other. And he had this vision of a field of crosses. And he said, I need another one, God. He sent him another one. He went on, I think there were either three or four, and the final one was of a doorway. He said it was very, very narrow. It was only wide enough for me to go through. And it was kind of brick, and, and, but through it... I could see that there was a a wonderful room 
and there was a party going on and people were sitting and it was a great banquet and they were all looking for somebody to come. But I couldn't go through the doorway. So he called David and he said, what does that mean? Well, have you made the connection? The doorway is narrow that leads to eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he now is an amazing evangelist. You can Google him and find his story. I'll put a link on the weekly email. It's a powerful, powerful story. He was giving this testimony at Biola University. He now travels around. But he's not unique. He said, my story is probably unique because I could argue Um, about it. I needed to argue and use my mind about it. So many people are coming to know Christ because of the love of Christians for them. Because of the love of Christians who are showing the love of Christ. He said, but many are having dreams of Jesus. Many are being introduced to Jesus Christ in dreams and then are going out God is not confined by our words to spread the message of his love and his truth. But he requires us to do so, who have come into the light. He asks that we do indeed enter into our ministry as a royal priesthood, giving prayers, our sacrifices of prayers, of praise and thanksgiving, and mediating the love of Christ to a broken world so that they can come and experience for themselves the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.